so some of you thought this day would never come. Some of you were young children when this series started. Um, Presbyterians, I've noticed, um, like knowing things. Um, buy a lot of books. You know, when I go to any of your homes, I can judge you pretty quickly just by looking through your bookshelf. Um, tells me all I really need to know. See what books you have. It's what people seem to notice when they come into my house for the first time. Not the golf books, per se, but the, uh, the books about Jesus and the Bible commentaries and theology books and things like that. We like the books. Um, back in the Second Great Awakening, at uh, the end of the 1800s, when the westward expansion was happening in the country and the Methodists sent out their circuit riders and the Baptists sent out their former preachers to plant churches in the expanding west, the Presbyterians sent their young ministers to Princeton because they didn't want to send them out there without a lot of books and without knowing something, um, which is both to our benefit and an ongoing problem for us. church like ours, it's easier to recruit to a book club than it is to recruit to a service project. And that's not all bad. You know, God gives different kinds of churches different gifts and things. Um, I don't know if other churches would be as excited as you seemed when I said we were going to go through an exhaustive and detailed study of the book of Romans. <laughs> but you did. I saw a lot of you who are excited about that. The danger or downside, though, for our crowd and for the way we kind of come at the faith is that we can easily start to define spiritual maturity uh, by measuring how much somebody knows. It's just kind of an intellectual criteria for whether someone is spiritually mature or not. Because knowing a lot feels like spiritual maturity. And that can be very misleading at times. Jesus said if you want to understand who somebody really is, uh, just like with a tree, you look at its fruit. Uh, it's the fruit of someone's life that determines uh, how spiritually mature they are. And what Paul says in this last section of his letter to the Romans is that all the weight of information that he's given us in this really dense book and profound book uh, only means something if it bears fruit in our lives. That is, if because of our thinking about the things we've thought about in the book of Romans, we have a greater affection for Jesus and a greater affection for each other. Only then is it really taken hold in our lives. Only then do we really benefit from it. Uh, not just if we know more facts and have a clearer and more insightful theology with which to argue or something like that. All right, so that's what we're going to think about today as we look at these closing remarks in Romans. Uh, what does it mean for us experientially to have affection for Jesus and affection for each other? And I'm only going to read verses 17 through 27. That's all I printed in the bulletin. The first 16 verses of Romans 16 are a uh, list of greetings and affirmations for at least about 28 people that he knows either in the church in Rome or the church in Corinth from which he's writing. And they aren't unimportant. We'll talk about why they matter later, but just to watch me trip over the pronunciation of their names didn't seem that helpful. So we'll start at verse uh, 17. Let me pray for us first. Father, please... Um, Meet with us. We're here because we want to know you. Uh, we're here. We want our faith to be deepened. Uh, we want our knowledge of you to be deepened. We want our love for you to be deepened. And so come help us. Speak to us through your word. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sociopater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, as Paul scribe, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, our brother Quartus, greet you. And now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been learning about trout fishing um, because I live in the Sonoran Desert. Why wouldn't I try to learn about trout fishing? Uh, but for whatever reason, it's uh, struck my fancy. So I'm brushing up on it a lot. Like I've listened to a lot of podcasts and a lot of YouTube videos that Julie can vouch for. I've read books, actually. I've been gathering up gear to go trout fishing, and I can talk a pretty decent game now. You know, I know about the Japanese method of tenkara fishing and to say tenkara instead of tenkara. I know that. And uh, you want to talk about tightline euro-nymphing? I've got something to say about it. You know, I know how to rig up a dry dropper um, with or without an indicator, depending on your preference. Uh, I know a little bit about trying to match the hatch of insects that are hatching on the river, when, uh, what bait to use, what flies to use because of that. I can talk a decent game. Um, but I'm not a good fly fisherman. I'm not. Um, I can say these things, but like, if you get me in a cold river trying to tie knots with my cold fingers and my bad eyes, I can barely tie a knot at all. And I spend more time if I'm fishing trying to get flies out of a tree than into the right spot on the river or untying the knots that I've made with my terrible casting and things like that. I'm not a good fisherman, but I know a lot about it. And in a conversation, I could probably hold my own, but anybody that was decent Fishing would cringe watching me try to fish all day, all right? Um, if you've been here during Romans, you've had a master class reading this book on the Christian faith and Christian theology. And if you paid any attention and if you're a quick study at all, you should be able to talk a pretty big, good game by now about the things that are central, importance in the Christian faith, the central doctrines of the faith, um, what the church ought to be, you should be able to talk that game pretty well. Um, but this summary chapter of Romans sort of asks the questions, uh, what actual good is it doing you to have learned these things? Uh, what fruit is there that's growing in your life because of the information that you have in the book of Romans? Uh, because what Paul seems to stress at the end of this chapter is, that the fruit that this ought to produce in you is a deep affection for Jesus, not just knowledge about him, but love for him. 
and a deep affection and connection to each other in the Christian church. And so we're going to look at this uh, passage under those two heads. First, affection for Jesus, and then affection for each other. So, um, affection for Jesus, to begin with, uh, when he summarizes in this letter in his doxology here, it's very uh, poetic and dense. um, He's summarizing the content of the whole letter, really. If you look at verse 25, he starts this doxology, "...to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel." That is the good news about Jesus that has been the theme of the whole letter, right? Explaining what does it mean that Jesus has come into the world. He's come to set the world back to rights. The world that's been ruined by human rebellion. To rescue us and reconnect us to God. And fix everything that we've broken with our rebellion. That's the good news. Jesus has come as the king of the world to set the world back to rights. And then he unpackages that a little more as he adds up all of these phrases. He says... uh, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. And then he says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, um, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. He's talking about all that he said in this book of Romans about how the, the story of the Bible, the story of history, has been the same story all along. That God all along intended to include not just the Jews, but all the nations in his family that he's restoring to himself. And Paul's done a lot of quoting of the Old Testament to show that this was always the point of biblical religion, that God was always intending to gather all the nations to himself and show them mercy. And then he even goes back to the, uh, to the Garden of Eden with this. In verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Which is the famous prophecy that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, the earliest expression of the hope of mercy in the Bible, right in Genesis 3. And we're included in that mission now. It's Jesus crushes the serpent's head, but he includes his people in his mission in the world. So Paul's pointing them back to everything that they have been taught in this letter. But he doesn't just say, remember as a summary at the end of the chapter for the exam, this information. He does two things. One, he says, to him who's able to strengthen you, according to my gospel. He wants your knowledge of this to be experiential in your life, not just information in your brain. And then he expects it to flow, in verse 27, into actual affection, praise to Jesus Christ. An overflow of your heart, a change of your love, not just a change in your thinking. He says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And that's the effect of the information experientially, we're supposed to grow in actual love for Jesus Christ, uh, not just knowledge about Him. Because, as you, I'm sure, know, dead orthodoxy is never orthodox. If we have the right opinions, but it doesn't bear fruit in our lives, then those opinions are of no use to us. They They don't matter to God, just having the right opinions. Uh, There's always the danger that knowledge puffs up, as Paul says in another of his letters. But love builds up. Paul's clearly not against knowledge. Um, The boy eats a lot of fish, apparently, because he's very smart. It's hard to read his letter and understand it because it's, it's very complex in its argument, as you have learned. But he's saying being able to understand complex arguments does not make you spiritually mature. It may make you feel spiritually mature. 
but it doesn't make you spiritually mature, which is a problem if you're anything like me and your bookshelf is a lot better than your heart, right? Um, I could do a lot better on a theology test than I could on a life examination and buy a piece, right? It's a lot that way. And as important as it is to understand what we need to understand about the faith, um, it's even more important that we be affected by what we've learned and by what we know. Right? To have a heart that goes out to God. That's why in the middle of his letter, you know, Paul goes through these uh, long doctrinal descriptions and then he'll just break out into what sounds like a song, but at least a doxological flourish. You know, like the end of Romans 8 after he describes adoption and the work of the Holy Spirit and our security in Jesus then he goes into this flourish about what can ever separate us from the love of Christ? Shall height, nor depth, or tribulation, or trial, or, you know, he goes on and on and on just in a flourish because he's kind of swept up in it. Because it's not just in his head, right? It's in his heart. At the end of Romans 11, after he's gone through three chapters of explaining the relationship of Israel and the church, three long, dense chapters about that. Oh, the height and depth of the riches and wisdom of God. He just breaks out into this doxology, and it's almost startling. But you realize he's not just. He's not just talking about facts. He's talking about his heart. And uh, that's how these things are meant to affect us too. That's why when he gives the benediction in this uh, verse 20 and says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, he doesn't say, may you more deeply uh, understand the doctrine of the grace of Christ. He says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you experientially in your life. So, knowledge about God is not the same thing as knowing God and loving Him. And that's the real test for us. And it's what we're really uh, given to want in our lives is an actual relationship of some intimacy and trust with Jesus Christ. Second thing that's supposed to happen to us because of this information, though, is that we're supposed to have a greater affection for each other. And um, in the first sense, that we're supposed to be connected to each other in love. You've got this like movie credits list of names in Romans 16. Not many people preach on Romans 16, I've noticed. Um, but it's just all the people he knows, and he affirms them as he goes along and describes the people that know each other from the two different churches, and he thinks that's totally worthwhile talking about because his understanding of the faith is wrapped up in these relationships, actual people that he knows and shares life with. In verses 21 to 23 here, you see he has another list to add on to the long list from the first part of the chapter. And uh, it's a pretty fascinating thing that he does this because you'd never read a list like this in a, in a book about Eastern religion. Because you know, there the emphasis would be more on moving within to try to uh, make some kind of spiritual connection. Uh, the more private, the more spiritual the more individual, the more spiritual. Um, escape from other people and the problems and desires that they bring would be more in focus. But here, Paul's driving us together, saying, you know, this is a team sport. You live it out together. It doesn't work for individuals. And uh, you're not just new people because you've been rescued by Jesus. You're part of the new city. This uh, outpost of his kingdom where the here, you're supposed to have on display relationships that are beginning to be healed by Jesus that people outside the church can look at and be attracted by. 
Right? The way we forgive each other, the way we have friendships across economic and racial barriers is supposed to be startling to the world. Uh, the more we live it out, the more it will be startling to the world. But if you look at the list of people in Romans 16, I mean, you've got people who have important governmental roles and you have slaves. All who are considered important people in the church, people who are leaders in the church, who serve in the church, uh, cross wild barriers that are not usually crossed otherwise. Uh, male and female, too. You see women mentioned as co-laborers in the church here in dramatic ways. It, it um, would have been very dramatic in the ancient Near East in the first century to talk about women this way. The beginning of the chapter, uh, Phoebe is a woman who's supposedly bringing the letter from Corinth to Rome. She's the... She's the uh, the mail carrier for this letter, but she's called a diakonos of the church in Corinth, a deacon, using the male version of the word. Uh, that word is used for minister, it's used for the office of deacon, but clearly Paul saw her as someone who was a leader in the church, which would have been bizarre in the ancient Near East. But this kind of community where these natural barriers are... Um, exist in the world or broken down is supposed to be the fruit of the information we have about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. It's supposed to change us that way. Now that's a little bit hard for us because um, in the U.S. and especially in the West, we're pretty individualistic in the way we think about our faith. Um, in a church plant like this, we also have the disadvantage of not having you know, generational connections here. We don't have grandparents whose kids were raised here and who are now raising their kids here in the church. Yet, uh, these early days, our roots are loose in terms of our connections to each other. We don't have a lot of shared history together. Um, and so we have to make more of a deliberate effort to build friendships with each other and community with each other. Sometimes if you're new, you have to fight a little harder to make connections here because everybody feels new and nobody feels the hotspot to go introduce themselves to others and welcome them because they feel new themselves. And so uh, that's a challenge for us here. But man, we also live in a culture where, and I bet I'm not the only one who's heard of stories like this, where people have left their church in the past year over the issue of masks. Like whether or not the church is requiring or not requiring masks. And you think, well, you may know a lot about masks and have a really great opinion about it. I don't. But you wonder what kind of connection people have made to other Christians in the body of Christ if you break those relationships over your church wanting you to wear a mask. I mean, it just, it's just a picture that we're shallow when it comes to this part of the Christian faith. We don't connect to each other the way that uh, Paul is expecting to be normal for Christians to connect here. Um, also, I've noticed in Tucson uh, that people will uh, change churches pretty rapidly when pastors change. And so people tend to follow the new pastor. And I'm sure that's true everywhere. It's just been striking to me hearing people's stories in Tucson who've been in the church a long time. Um, and it also speaks to the level of connection and commitment we have to each other in the body uh, when just the change in the show on Sunday uh, loosens our roots that easily. I think sometimes the, I don't recommend it, I don't think, but you know the Methodists used to move their ministers every four years. And you knew as soon as the new minister showed up, they were going to leave in four years. And so 
you know, people would attach to each other more and not so much to their ministers when that would happen. And uh, there's something healthy in that, right? The minister shouldn't matter that much if we're making the kind of friendships that we ought to be making. So take that into account. We're supposed to be connected to each other in love. And if that's not happening, there's a disconnect between what we've been taught and what's actually happening in our lives. The second thing he mentions, though, is, uh, is uh, that we have to be really wary of divisions, of causing divisions and of uh, fomenting divisions in the church. And this is what he says right at the beginning of verse 17. I appeal to you to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. They seem to be serving Christ, but they're not. They're serving themselves, and they tend to be manipulative and smooth-talking. Now, Paul's talked about divisions before in this book. Uh, Like in chapter 14 and into 15, he's talking about people create divisions because they're over-scrupulous, like they're nitpicking at things that don't matter that much. Like you're making everything into a first-level, trinity-level doctrine, and if people disagree with you on those things, you can't get along with them. But here he's saying, don't drop the bar so low that like, you don't have any standards for unity. He's saying if people are teaching contrary to the doctrine that's taught here, uh, that's going to divide the church and harm the church just as much and just as easily. So you can be over-concerned about purity or over-concerned about unity and you know, fall into a ditch on either side of the road that way. I mean, our habitual problem in the Reformed Presbyterian world is that we overemphasize purity and uh, don't worry enough about unity. You know, we like to fight about doctrine. We like to draw the lines clear and narrow. Um, We have denominational meetings every year where there's not a pandemic. And if there's no big controversy that year, nobody shows up for general assemblies, right? Because that's the fun of it, right? We're going to go fight because we're going to defend the truth. Because ever since the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and said... You know, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. It's neither safe nor right to go against it. Here I stand. I can do no other. Well, ever since then, every Reformed person has woken up every day thinking they're at the Diet of Worms, ready to fight, ready to draw a line in the sand. You know, the Patrick Henry in the Far Side cartoon standing up to his family at dinner saying, give me the potatoes or give me death. Right? You know, I mean, that's the, that's the Reformed attitude towards unity. And... Uh, because really, what's the fun of being a Protestant and a schismatic if you have to compromise, right? We could just go be Catholics if we're just going to compromise, right? Um, that's our, that's yeah, an attitude of heart well known to me, let's just say. Very familiar to me. Um, and so that's a problem that we've talked about. But on the other side, and what Paul's talking about here more is the problem of doctrinal dilution, that if we don't pay close attention to the core of the faith, the central matters on which the faith rests, uh, then we'll undermine the church, we'll undermine its unity, and certainly its effectiveness in the world. And the decline of the mainline churches in my lifetime has been sort of exhibit A for that argument, that um, at least a large part of the reason the mainline churches have declined is because they've decided to hold up a mirror to the culture in terms of what the culture believes and values instead of drawing the hard lines where the Bible draws them and being willing to live with the pointy edges and the disapproval of the culture when you hold to unpopular views. 
And no matter when and where you live as a Christian, there are going to be things that you hold to biblically that the culture is offended by. I mean, it's inevitable, right? It's inevitable. Um, and it is a great temptation, even for pointy-edged, reformed people like us. It's a temptation to want to say what pleases people and to water down the things that are hard. And um, I feel that very deeply, too. But these are things we're warned against. Uh, because division in a church is so crippling. It's so crippling to the reputation of Jesus Christ and the community around us. Every pastor I know has two books on a shelf, usually right next to each other. And I don't know any exceptions to this. I, I haven't made a thorough study. But one is well-intentioned dragons, and the other is antagonists in the church. Because they hand these books to you in seminary and say, watch out, <laughs> the sheep have teeth, <laughs> and there's going to be trouble coming for you. Read these books. They'll help some. Antagonists in the church and well-intentioned dragons. Um, we're not immune. We're just young. We don't know each other well enough to pick at each other very well yet. But we will, and we need to watch out. Here's some things that can help us a little bit. And drawing from what he says in verse 20, when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and he says we're drawn into Jesus' mission with him, when a church thinks about its mission outside its walls, it tends to get along better inside the walls. I had a friend who was in church, and they were just griping each other all the time about the music mainly in church, because who gets to like the music in church? And uh, he said, they're griping and griping and griping. And finally, I took as many of them as I could on a mission trip to Cuba. And he said, it solved it. <laughs> because... You know, they got their heads up out of the sand and realized they're on a mission that matters in the world and griping at each other isn't helping. So the more we're focused outside the church, the easier it is sometimes for us to treat each other well, to overlook the things that need to be overlooked. Another thing is to remember that we're not home yet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not yet, not completely. Soon, not yet. You're not home yet. So... Don't expect your church to be perfect. Don't expect your Christian friends to be perfect. They're going to need to be forgiven. You're going to need to be forgiven. Your ministers are going to let you down. I say the plural, you know, the royal plural. I'm going to let you down. And uh, if I haven't already, I will. Um, church plants tend to sort of bait you to perfectionism, though, because you think, hey, we could shape this thing to be whatever we want it to be we might be able to get the perfect church finally that I've been looking for. You know, we can do things right this time because we're starting from scratch, and that's not true. You know, I had a friend in a church plant we did before who was uh, very uh, doctrinally precise and thought finally he was home at a place where everything would be done right. And within about three years, he wrote a 20-page paper to the Presbytery about all the things I was doing wrong. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it could be argued that I do a lot wrong. Um, Julie read the paper and said, those things aren't true. She said, I could write a paper that would stick. <laughs> but, you know, the guy just had high hopes for me, which I kind of appreciate. And he, uh, and he wound up going to a church that was uh, way less doctrinally precise than he was. With The first day he walked in the door, he knew a bunch of things they disagreed with. And he made it there and he's happy. Because he has low expectations there. And... Grant that we all would have low expectations of our church, right? We'll be happier if we don't expect so much from the church. 
And then last thing I just helps us with division and unity things is just to try to pay attention and be careful um, about your social media habits and your political habits and bringing them into the church. Because Paul gives this long list of people and he's affirming every one of them. And I bet he knew something about all of them that he could have criticized. But it's just affirmation after affirmation after affirmation. And uh, our habits of being suspicious and wildly critical and you know, super abrasive in the way we evaluate people and what they do and think, you know, easily seeps in in the way we treat each other in the church, and it's poison. So my problem, your problem, uh, but it's one that we have to face that's uh, maybe unique to us where we live. So we're going to do an institute's class, a leadership training class starting in March, um, where we're trying to recognize leaders and help develop people and some of their gifts and leadership and um, what we'll probably do a great job of doing is getting you coached up intellectually, you know, because that's the easy part, uh, to get people who can pass the doctrine test at church. And if you're new, we really have a doctrine test at church for our leaders. So um, if you thought we were crazy, didn't think we were crazy before, we are. Um, but we got a benefit in this church. You've noticed how we kind of have people... Uh, in this church, mostly who are kind of uh, young, up to you know 30, 35 or so, and then we have people who are empty nesters like me. Um, I feel like there's an opportunity in that for you younger people who are taking on leadership and evaluating how you can lead in the church. Uh, you've got a core of people who are not just knowledgeable about the faith, but who live it out with deep affection for Jesus and deep affection for other Christians to draw on. Uh, and cultivate that. You, a lot of you in RUF are, have been like adopted by a church family. That's great. Some of you who are out of school and things, though, um, you need to adopt some people that are older than you and just get them in your life because there's a surprising depth of resources among the people my age and older here at the church. And it's a great advantage to you to learn not just uh, the ideas of the Christian faith, but the studied long practice of the Christian faith. Um, so, and especially if you're thinking about being an elder, there are some guys here who have been elders for a long time. And they aren't the crotchety, we've never done it that way before, um, I just want church to not bother me kind of old elders. They're, I love Jesus and I want to be about his mission, old elders, and you should learn from them and develop relationships with them. But when you go to select your leaders, which should happen, Lord willing, within a year or so, um, I want you to look for people who don't just have uh, the most expensive neoprene waders and the shiny bamboo fly rods who can talk a good game. <laughs> I want you to find the people who've got the scars in their ears from where they hook themselves, who know a little bit about how to get snags out of trees and out of the bottom of the river and who've been around long enough to know where the fish are. Uh, because those are the kind of people who have imbibed and embodied what Paul has taught us in this letter of Romans. Um, they're the ones who are mature, the ones who love Jesus and who love each other. All right? Now let's pray.